it's important to foster ocean empathy in as many ways as we can. I see kids being more excited about the ocean now, and then they are able to connect the dots better and at a younger age. You're listening to Hope Act Thrive by Be The Future, an inspirational podcast for guardians of the next generation who want to nurture heroic leaders for environmental change. Just like you, we want to create a better, greener, fairer future for the kids in our life. Hi, I'm Sally Giblin, an environmentalist, writer, and parent, and co-host of this podcast, alongside the brilliant Helen Hill. Hi, I'm Helen, and I'm an educator, author, and designer. Hello, and welcome to the Hope Act Thrive podcast. Today's episode is with Sheena Nagea, an ocean advocate and doctoral candidate at Stanford University, studying marine governance in the Western Indian Ocean. Her community-based research focuses on small-scale fisheries, protected area management, and the valorization of natural and cultural heritage in marine governance. She's most recently worked on assessing the compounding social impacts of COVID-19 and the 2020 Wakashio oil spill disaster on coastal communities in Mauritius, her home country. She's interested in understanding people-nature connections and how that influences pro-ecological behaviour, which refers to the actions that people take to either reduce environmental harm or actively help restore the natural environment. In this conversation, we'll be talking about the social ocean, ocean advocacy, and connectedness to nature. So let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Yashina. Hello, and thank you for having me. We're very excited to chat with you. You do such fascinating work, so thank you for taking the time. Could you tell us about your love of the ocean and your journey to becoming an ocean advocate? Yes, sure. So first of all, I was born on the island of Mauritius. It's a tiny island, 500 miles off the east coast of Madagascar. We have just 1.3 million people and really beautiful beaches and I've grown up like living 10 minutes away from the beach um, you know very close proximity and being uh, by the seaside every weekend so I think that creates a great sense of affinity with the ocean I would say it's really after my undergraduate degree um, in Southeast Asia as well where I was studying tropical biology and environmental management and I've done this these research projects where I've interacted you know directly with sea turtles and that just connected the dots for me you know living by the sea and then understanding the the ecology the ecosystem dynamics being completely in awe of how amazing you know ocean creatures like sea turtles can be Um, I think that feeling of awe just enhanced that inherent love I had for the ocean. And then after my undergraduate degree, when I came back to work in Mauritius, I was managing a marine conservation NGO here. And uh, through my work, I was able to have continued interactions with fishers and tourist operators, you know, people whose livelihood directly depended on the sea. And I think that really gave me this big picture perspective of how the 
connection to the ocean, connected to the ecology, to livelihoods, and how we need to think of all of it together when we are thinking about uh, challenges that oceans are facing and what we can do to protect the ocean. So I think throughout my lifetime, I was very lucky that I was able to connect the dots and be able to, you know, still work in that sphere to engage more people and, and keep taking positive actions to protect the ocean. Yeah, so you've had a growing fascination with the social ocean over the years, and this isn't a term I'd heard of before, actually. So can you talk us through what that term means to you? I personally got acquainted with the term at the start of my PhD. So I'm doing a doctoral degree in environment and resources. It's an interdisciplinary program at Stanford University. And over the years, the social ocean has been a seminar-based class that graduate students working in the ocean space has been leading. There's four fundamental components of the social ocean. So firstly is how we connect to the ocean. And then it also encompasses an understanding of how the ocean sustains communities and livelihood. Then there's also how we as humans impact the ocean. So what is the range of stresses that the ocean is currently facing? How do they you know, interact with each other uh, in terms of the risks that are created for ocean systems? And lastly, how can we protect our ocean? And when we think about all of these components, it's important to think both, you know, at the challenges, but also at the opportunities and solutions that are being undertaken at individual, local, national, and also global levels, because eventually they are all linked. You know, we 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 have to work um, across these different spheres and these different levels so that we can actually make progress because uh, the type of challenges we are facing at the moment is is complex and it requires actions at all of these levels. I really like, Jashina, that you talk about both the problems and the opportunities or solutions as you go through those because I think it is so important to keep navigating back to that and, you know, focusing our tensions on what we already can put in place today and then where we need to keep developing those solutions to to really make that future better. So I guess it'd be great to dig into the first aspect of the social ocean then. So how do we as people or humans connect the ocean? We connect to the ocean for me, I think, firstly, by spending time exploring and learning about the ocean. When I reflect back on my own personal journey, I may have grown up by the ocean, but I also kind of took it for granted. And uh, it's only when I was taken away from it during my undergrad years that I realized how much I missed it. And then when I got a research opportunities to work with sea turtles, I, that feeling of awe I had in my early 20s, right, I think it has sustained me over the past decade because I was just so fascinated and that fascination you know led me to want to keep working in that sphere and I when I speak to my colleagues it's very interesting to see that there was a particular moment of awe that has nurtured their own passion and during the social ocean class that we teach actually one of the assignments that uh, I remember uh, giving students was to talk about their moments of awe and, and doing creative projects to explain what 
how they connected to the ocean. So some people spoke about, you know, going tide pooling with their family. Uh, others spoke about the diving experience or surfing or doing a research trip with or just field outing during um, the, their school days. So I think it's it's very important to have that feeling of awe. And of course, not everyone has the same opportunities, right? But right now, we are so lucky that we are exposed to the beauty and of, of the ocean in so many ways. There's amazing documentaries, uh, great movies as well. And there's increasing use of technology to make that connection with the ocean more and more real, even though, you know, some people cannot directly be connected. So over the past few years, there's been increasing use of virtual reality, augmented reality to simulate dives. And I think all of those together are so important to, to lead to that moment of awe uh, that we can have with the ocean that eventually leads to us wanting to protect the ocean as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, you've got me thinking there about my moment of awe because I'm very much from a landlocked place. I'm right bang in the middle of England and Although it, the, the coast is only sort of an hour and a half, two hours away, you know, and it's very different to being somewhere with a lovely exotic ocean to go into sort of Blackpool or something. But, you know, it's incredible to reflect back on my moment, moments of awe from when I was little and, you know, going abroad and having those moments. And then, as you say, diving for the first time, I think, is what really cemented it for me. And I can see how that's been nurtured in me through these experiences my family gave me. But why do you think it's important to nurture children's connection to the ocean from a young age then, whether people are by the ocean or further inland like I am and giving those opportunities? I think that the earlier, the better. Um, it's important to foster ocean empathy is in as many ways as we can. And I think, you know, movies like Finding Nemo and Moana have made underwater life seem so much more exciting. And I see kids being more excited about the ocean now. And then they are able to connect the dots better. And at a younger age, for example, you know, when I'm working at policy level or working with communities, you know, we think about traceability and consumption a lot, be it about plastic objects or products, use of sunscreen or the type of seafood we are consuming, right? These are choices that children, today's children will be making in the future. So I think if we are able to connect the dots at a younger age, they'll be able, they'll be more prepared to make these decisions in the future. Because of the pandemic, I've been back in the Mauritius, in Mauritius for the past year. And while setting up my office, I came across this drawing that I had made of a trip to the marine park when I was was when I was a child, and you know, I had drawn different kinds of corals and fish. And I think for me, it was a snapshot of this moment of awe I had when I was much, much younger. It was probably in primary school. And it just reinforced the idea about why we need to make those connections at a young age. I don't think when I was that young, you know, probably 10, 11 years old, I, I would have thought, you know, I would be working on marine protected areas as an adult, but somehow these seeds are sown very young. And now whenever I have the opportunity to give gifts to, to my nieces and nephews or 
children of my friends, I try to make sure it's always ocean related. And there's always a lot of excitement that I, I see from kids. So for me, I feel like this is one of my solution spaces, trying to nurture that connection as early as I can in, in my circle. I love what you're saying there about the seeds being sown when children are really young. And I think, I mean, Helen and I completely agree because that's at the heart of what we're doing with Be the Future as well and all about nurturing children's love of nature and the environment. So agree with you 100%. I love the passion that's coming through. And so just to switch gears a little bit, so perhaps to talk then about that next aspect of the social ocean in terms of sustaining communities and livelihoods. So I think it's said that over... 3 billion people rely on food from the ocean for protein and nutrition, so a huge part of the world's population. Most of those people are from developing countries. How does the ocean sustain communities and livelihoods? You're right. Over 3 billion people uh, do rely on the ocean for uh, their food needs, for protein, for nutrition, and, uh, but there's also a dependence for energy and uh, material and space as well. Uh, so the ocean becomes very important for food security and other forms of livelihood like tourism. In uh, Mauritius, um, there, there is that high reliance on small-scale fisheries and also on tourism. And I think for me, it got highlighted a lot more during the pandemic when uh during the first lockdown, fishing was not allowed. There was also uh, closure of our borders. So, you know, tourism was also directly affected. And we could see how that had a direct impact on, on people's livelihood, but also food security. A lot of coastal communities are able to fish for subsistence and nourish their families. So we could see that well-being of uh, coastal communities was highly impacted when you take away that source of revenue and food uh, from them. And also beyond coastal communities as well, it's important to remember that our climate is also regulated by the ocean, right? So over 93% of surplus energy from the enhanced greenhouse effect is, is absorbed by the ocean. So for each and every one of us, uh, our survival really depends on uh, healthy ocean ecosystems. Wow, that's something that I just hadn't even heard about, uh, the, the impact there of the, the lockdown and, and not being able to sustain your families. That's that's an incredible effect on their lives, isn't it? And a question that leads on from that is how can we build more resilient and equitable ocean-based economies then? That's a very good question. There's a lot of buzz around ocean-based economies right now. You know, there's a rush. There's different terms that is being used, like there's blue growth and blue acceleration. You know, there's a lot of interest in how we can tap into what ocean-based economies can offer, be it in like terms of uh, deep sea mining or aquaculture, um, you know, fisheries, just so many uh, sect energy sectors or so many sectors uh, where the ocean can help us in advancing, you know, national economies. But within all of that, it's important to 
understand um, and incorporate a strong sense of blue justice, you know, um, make sure that while we are going towards that growth, we also understand who are the people who are dependent on ocean resources. And when we are trying to prioritize this type of economic growth, we need to make sure that there is not an equal distribution of, uh, you know, be it technical or financial capacity to engage in those ocean sectors. So in my case, for example, based on the work that I do, there's a lot of focus in making sure that uh, small-scale fishing communities are not disproportionately affected by environmental stresses, but also by this acceleration for blue growth. And more globally, there is also a push to incorporate the voices of indigenous and coastal communities more when we are thinking of boosting this blue economy. Uh, there's not just indigenous voices, but also other uh, vulnerable groups like women generally have a critical role to play in ocean sectors. And it's very important to make sure that as we are thinking about growth, we are thinking about all the vulnerable groups that need to be incorporated in, in these discussions um, as well. Absolutely, Jashina. And I think you know, social justice is completely intertwined with you know, ocean justice and climate justice and, and the climate crisis, all of those aspects. And it's incredibly important that as we you know, continue to create this, this better future and, and put in place more solutions, that we're very much focusing on, on lifting up the more vulnerable communities and, and Indigenous people and, and really having much more equality um, coming through as well. And I guess as, as part of your work, Jashina, you've experienced firsthand the effects of human impacts on the oceans. Can you tell us about some of the things that you've seen? Yes, so I think over the years, the impacts I've witnessed more has been coral bleaching, the um, damage that coral reefs has faced due to rising temperatures. And also I work a lot on exploitation of fisheries resources and um, we are also seeing a lot of impacts of pollution in, you know, multiple contexts. It's very interesting to see that irrespective of geographical areas, you know, I've worked, I am from the Western Indian Ocean. I work in this context right now, but I've also worked in Southeast Asia before and being based in California for my studies. Like, you know, it's, it's interesting that across contexts, these big sources of stresses are there everywhere, you know, so like, of course, global climate change causing coral bleaching um, due to rising temperatures, but also pollution and exploitation of fisheries resources. So with 90% of big fish populations depleted and almost up to 50% of coral reefs damaged, the problem we are facing right now is that we are taking more from the ocean that can be replenished. And what used to be the thought before was that, you know, the, the ocean resources was endless and just so bountiful. And there's increasing evidence that this is not the case. And we have a very strong urgency to protect and preserve ocean resources and make sure that we are consuming sustainably to create a balance and 
for that, we need to build that connection that is inclusive and innovative and also evidence-based all along. And I've been lucky that my role as an academic has been to engage more strongly with coastal communities who are directly impacted by these threats. And my work has taken a natural shift towards environmental justice because there are so many power dynamics that we deal with here when we think about the range of threats and who are the vulnerable groups that are eventually affected first by, by these threats. Totally understand what you're saying. And I think there's that thing of it's sometimes hard for us to see our human impact on the ocean because it's under the water, isn't it? And But our human you know, impact is huge and one thing that has really impacted Mauritius lately is the devastating oil spill in 2020 which is one of the worst environmental disasters the island's faced. Can you tell us a bit about how Mauritius has dealt with the disaster and what we can learn from it? Definitely it was it came as uh, quite a shock. So the oil spill happened while we were dealing with the first wave of the pandemic here and as I mentioned before, tourism and fisheries and other coastal livelihoods were already impacted. So just when, you know, there was going to be a reopening of the different sectors and, you know, coastal communities could, you know, finally think about recovering from the intense impact that the first COVID lockdown has had, the oil spill happened and it just further crippled uh, that coastline. Um, I think in Mauritius, we were also not prepared to deal with the oil spill right away. There is a high dependence on international expertise for these situations and because there was this international border closure, there was also a delay in getting experts on the ground. But one silver lining, I would say, was that uh, the oil spill led to this massive community mobilization when people saw their blue turquoise water turn dark black. There was this sense of alarm and like thousands of Mauritians came together in the production of artisanal booms made of sugarcane bagasse and fabrics and everything that was locally available to make uh, oil booms until the experts were all here and a cleanup plan was set up. Um, so that kind of community mobilization for me was incredible. It showed the level of environmental consciousness that, that existed in, in our communities, but it also showed that people felt inherently connected and they felt threatened when these ecosystems that they cared about were affected. I think when we try to derive bigger lessons from this is that we need to be better prepared for these high-risk, low-frequency situations because all spills happen very rarely but when they happen they're devastating not just for the environment but also for communities who depend on it for the past year i've been working on assessing the social impacts that the oil spill and the pandemic have had on communities and it's been it was a very heavy experience to to just understand how people's lives had been completely disrupted even 
as we speak, you know, more than a year after the oil spill. And for me, it's very important that we derive as many lessons as we can from this disaster, just so that another country does not have to deal with this sudden um, shock. And we do not only prepare contingency plans, but we also make sure that uh, there are sufficient drills, that different sectors are involved when we think about disaster response. In Mauritius, we were we saw not just government and international aid, but also NGOs, private sector, and local residents come together. And I think very often when we think about oil spill, we think it's very technical, right? And only experts can be involved. But you can't predict how big or how extensive an oil spill can be and what kind of resources you might need. So for I think for us, what it, it taught us is that it's important that we engage as many groups as we can. And I think eventually after the cleanup, when I was interviewing one of the oil cleaning companies, they were saying, you know, at least now Mauritius has trained residents who would know what to do in case of an oil spill in the future. Because a lot of uh, villagers uh, from these uh, oil spill impacted areas uh, have been working with these cleanup companies to perform the cleaning operations months after the oil spill. So it was a tragic uh, event that the island has faced during the pandemic. But I think now we are at a stage where we can really process and take the right lessons that we can share with other contexts in the region and around the world too. It sounds like it really was quite a, a devastating experience and still continues to have those um, other impacts from it too. So thank you for talking through that and sharing your learnings. And it sounds like collaboration and working together on these sorts of crises is what is needed to try and avert the disasters in the future. And I guess that links in quite nicely to this whole idea of how can we then protect our ocean. Because there is a range of stresses, um, we also need to think about a range of uh, protection measures as well. And having just spoken about the oil spills, I think in that case, it's very important to think globally about shipping routes and um, how we can avoid more ecologically sensitive areas. And when we think about coral bleaching and the degradation that critical ocean habitats are facing, like coral reefs, I think very important to limit our greenhouse gas emissions. That's like the basis of everything to address a range of stresses that the ocean is facing in terms of bleaching and ocean acidification. So that's very important. And then also rethinking our consumption patterns when we think about plastic pollution and the depletion of our fishery stocks, then it becomes about the sustainable choices we are making when consuming seafood also becomes very important. So those are actions we need to take at individual level, but also there's a strong role that private sector governments and also policymakers need to make so that, you know, together we can have more effective actions being taken to, to protect the ocean. So to follow up from that, are lots of conservation measures going on around the world for the ocean. I'd love to hear about some of the most effective conservation measures you've heard about, whether it's in Mauritius or other places around the world. 
I've worked a lot around marine protected areas and increasingly there's a lot of interest with other effective conservation measures. So for example, if there are areas that are already being protected for cultural reasons uh, or historical reasons. So making if they are also protecting biodiversity, ensuring that this counts towards uh, ocean protection is important. So when we protect uh, certain areas uh, from different kinds of threats, right? So we regulate uh, fishing, other any other practices like you know um, tourist operations around a certain area. Uh, we give the chance for ecosystems to recover from the range of human uh, caused stresses that they're facing, and these uh, areas becomes like you know some kind of recovery sites for ocean ecosystems. And uh, that can help the ocean as a whole to, to, to recover and regenerate. So currently, there's the goal of uh, protecting 30% of our ocean by the year 2030. And there's a lot of action being taken to make positive strides in that direction, which is extremely hopeful. But as I mentioned before, it is very important that we make sure that we are doing this in a just and fair manner to communities who also depend on these resources. So yes, the blue justice needs to be at the forefront of any conservation measures we are uh, working on. At the same time, when I think locally, what kinds of uh, conservation measures are being undertaken, there's a lot of coral restoration initiatives and what's interesting is that it's happening in collaboration with local coastal communities, uh, fishing cooperatives as well. So for me, that's, those are actions definitely in the positive direction. There's also initiatives to increase traceability and transparency around the fisheries operations to make sure that we are fishing sustainably locally, but also globally. So um, increasing transparency around our use of ocean resources has definitely been part of the actions that is being undertaken. That's definitely going in the right direction. So a real breadth of measures are really needed, aren't they, to protect our oceans? But I guess it's encouraging to hear that there's definitely action taking place and that there are strides being made in these various areas. And I guess to follow on from that, Jashina, your PhD work is looking into the complexities around marine governance in your home country of Mauritius. Mm-hmm. Are you able to talk us through the importance of this work and what you hope to achieve with this work? Yeah, definitely. One of the main motivations inspiring my PhD work has been my experience working at the Marine Conservation NGO around a marine park in Mauritius and understanding the range of coastal livelihoods dependent on the ocean. And one of my goals has been to legitimize that community voice when we think about protecting the ocean, but also uh, working towards blue growth. How can we make sure that we are proposing equitable solutions when we work on marine governance, when we think about how we are going to use our marine spaces. I think that's very important. It's also important to bring forth the fact that people want to protect their ecosystems. And we've seen it, you know, firsthand with the oil spill when we saw thousands of people mobilizing to come protect their coastline. And even throughout my research, we've worked a lot on measuring pro-ecological behavior 
of the different communities around marine protected areas. And there is a great sense of that connectedness to nature, which is very important. And my PhD also allows me to link what's happening on the ground to policy level actions at um, national and regional levels and connect these different spheres, you know, be it in understanding challenges or addressing solutions. And I really like to balance working on understanding challenges, but also thinking about solutions, because it's very easy for it to get gloomy when we think about the threats that our ocean are facing. But I think ever since my PhD, I've also been able to witness a lot more the range of actions being taken in the solution space. And that has been incredibly empowering for my own journey. And for example, when I was working on understanding oil spill impact last year, I also had the chance to lead a study for Abalobi, which is a social enterprise which aims to co-design tech solutions for small-scale fishers. So I was able to lead multiple fisher workshops to understand how we could use innovative tech solutions to support uh, small-scale fishing communities who are increasingly facing challenges in marine spaces. And for me, I think that's the most exciting part of my work, being able to balance understanding of challenges with how can we use this understanding to build solutions for more resilient coastal communities. And I, I feel very lucky that I'm able to focus on both of these aspects. And also I've been able to, uh, for my work on marine protected areas, I've been able to work with other organizations like the Wildlife Conservation Society to compare case studies across the globe to see how different governance measures eventually affect social and ecological outcomes. So are our marine protected areas really achieving ecological outcomes um, in terms of coral reef recovery? Are we getting higher fish biomass? But also in terms of social outcomes. So are the marine protected areas helping to support coastal livelihoods? So it's it's been very interesting also to use the work that I've been doing uh, locally to compare with these other global data sets. Uh, so it's been a very empowering path and I actually consider it a privilege that I'm able to work in such a space of marine policy and environmental justice and like really feel like I've been doing my best. So that's been great. Really, it's fascinating work. And uh, I've got to say, before I go off and research how to change careers now into some kind <laughs> of marine biology, marine conservation, one last question we wanted to ask you is, you mentioned about feeling empowered by your research and things, but what gives you hope for the future? I think seeing the younger generation be at the forefront of uh, climate justice and environmental movements have given me a lot of hope. I think when I was in my undergrad, uh, you know, almost a decade ago, whenever I was talking about environmental conservation, it felt like a very novel off topic, at least in my circle. But now, you know, everyone's thinking more and more people, I would say, are thinking about sustainability in their daily lives. Uh, a lot more people felt concerned, for example, by the recent COP conference. And I think that's 
a very positive note because we are seeing people across spheres and hierarchies talking about sustainability and sustainable actions they are taking. So that gives me a lot of hope that there is a lot more conversations and actions and um, pressure being put on you know different types of decision makers to promote more sustainable solutions. I also see a lot more innovation being encouraged from the private sector, from the NGO world, from academic groups. And that also gives me hope like that so many people are working on solutions and um, so many people are working on understanding connections uh, to the ocean, understanding how communities rely on the ocean and understanding how solutions will need to integrate all these voices. So I think that, that definitely gives me a lot of hope because I've, I'm seeing you know, the movement in the, in the solution space grow more and more. But of course, there's a lot more that needs to be done. There's a lot of funding that is required to, to foster these solutions. And um, we need people engaged at, at all spheres more and more. So there's a lot of hope, but th- there's also a lot more to be done as well. Yes, and I think that's really about active hope, isn't it? It's having that hope for the future and really seeing what it could be and the solutions and, and the rising up for change, but at the same time taking that action to create it and, and make that happen. And it's been a, a wonderful conversation, Jashina. Your work is so fascinating and incredibly needed. And Helen and I both love the ocean, so we were very excited to speak with you. And thank you very much for taking the time and wish you all the best in your PhD work. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We really hope this episode inspired you. If it did... Please review, subscribe, and share this episode with a curious friend. It makes it possible for us to keep having these conversations for you. Oh, and check out the show notes for more details on this episode and our guest. And come say hi to us on Instagram over at bethefuture.earth, where we share real tips for real parents and help you to turn eco-anxiety into playful action. Let's hope, act, and thrive.